Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. All right. So, Matt, it seems from your social media feed like you have been quite the world traveler lately. I have. And it was a wonderful trip. We just had three beautiful days in Paris, two beautiful days in London, and the whole thing just could not have been more wonderful. It came off beautifully. Yes, as for me, I had just over three weeks of travel, but that included missing our cousin's wedding because of COVID, a truncated stay in New York, my wife having to leave the trip in the middle to go to her uncle's memorial service, a stay in Maine, where my mother-in-law is just selling her condo, and a couple of college visits for my daughter. All right, why don't I take Spider-Man and then you take Fantastic Four? Sound good? Okay, sounds like a plan. So this is an important issue of Spider-Man, because we introduce the character who is arguably Spider-Man's most iconic villain. But you would Um, never guess it from this issue. You would not. Such low stakes in this particular issue. He he grows into the role. Let's put it that way. On the cover, we see that we've got Green Goblin not yet on his goblin glider. At this point, he's just got this little rocket thing that he calls his broomstick. And he is flying around in a cave. Spider-Man is stuck to the roof of the cave. We see the enforcers down at the bottom of the cave. We see that we're going to get a guest appearance by the Hulk. This is definitely a case of like, all right, Stan Lee and the Hulk, get a room. It's time you admit that you are in love with each other. It's time you admit, Stan, that the Hulk needs his own book because he has been just guest starring and guest starring and guest starring more than once a month in all of these different books. We just had him in a two-parter in Fantastic Four, and then here he is again in Spider-Man in a story in which he really does not fit and has to be totally shoehorned in just because they're desperate of the Hulk appear every month in the Marvel Universe. Hey, here's an idea, Stan. If you want the Hulk to appear every month in the Marvel Universe, give him his own book. That's exactly what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been doing with the Hulk. They yeah. started him off in his own movie, but then ever since then, they've just been having him be a guest character in everybody else's movies. Of course, there are reasons for that involving like uh, Universal's rights to distribution of Hulk movies. And so Marvel has to pay Universal if they have a movie actually branded as a Hulk movie. So instead, they just basically say, oh, well, this is so and so and Hulk. And so we get all this stuff, including now She-Hulk, which I just saw the first episode of this week. And I was pretty happy with it. I have not seen it yet. I am just now getting caught up on Moon Knight, so I'm way behind. I haven't seen most Marvel. <laughs> I'm watching Moon Knight, which I'm really enjoying. Moon Knight takes a while to get going, but I'm really enjoying it now that it's in the swing of things. We are introduced to the Green Goblin. We see him just sort of tinkering on his broomstick, and he has these big plans. And the plans involve going out and recruiting the Enforcers, uh, who are a pretty lame group in my personal opinion. Seems like, why would you go for them? I mean, maybe just because they're easy to order around? I don't know. But then... I, I'm on record as liking the Enforcers a lot more than yes. you do. I think they've got a lot of personality. I think they're a lot of fun. But then on the bottom of page two, when he introduces himself to the Enforcers, he says, I'm not anyone. I'm the Green Goblin. And then he has little sparklers coming out of his finger. And they're like, hey, sparks shooting out of his fingers. They're very, very impressed with just basically a sparkler finger. 
which I, you know, don't quite get. So we then cut to a Hollywood producer and um, both Steve Ditko and Stanley have a lot of fun with this over the top melodramatic Hollywood producer and his uh, sycophantic yes men. Ascot wearing <laughs> Hollywood producer. Yes. So then he is approached by the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin says, hey, you know what? I've got a movie idea for you. We will get Spider-Man to be in a movie and I'll be in it as the villain and uh, it'll be great. And he's like, oh, my goodness. Yes, this is fantastic. We'll do it. So then we uh, switch back to New York City and Peter Parker's high school. Liz is really switching her allegiance much more firmly to Peter from Flash at this point. And she's really getting all up in Flash's face for being a dick to Peter Parker. But then he has to run off because he happens to hear a transistor radio broadcast about some green figure flying around New York City. There's always some dude in Peter's class walking around carrying a little book-sized transistor radio up to his head and getting the news flashes and then announcing them to Peter and his classmates. It's like, well, you think like if Peter is so hot to you know, here when people are attacking the city, Peter would just have a little transistor radio he'd be walking around with or somebody. But luckily, some transistor radio addicted dude is just always walking by. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you remember how it was in high school. You know, everyone had their transistor radios around distracting them from the school day. So uh, he turns into Spider-Man, catapults himself up into the air to intercept the Green Goblin on his flying broomstick. The Green Goblin says, hey, yo, I'm not a supervillain. I'm just here trying to get your attention. And uh, I'm going to, you know, invite you to talk to this producer about being in this movie. Spider-Man's like, wow, that's a lot of money. This is actually kind of awesome. I, yeah, I, why would I not do this? So he signs the uh, paperwork. How he signs it, I don't know. Do you sign it as Spider-Man? And if so, is that a legally binding document? <laughs> you never know these things. He goes by the Daily Bugle. And the announcement has been made about this movie being shot. J. Jonah Jameson wants pictures of a Spider-Man. So, of course, he sends his Spider-Man photographer. Peter is like, that's great. This gives me cover for going down there. He then gets clued in on exactly why Betty's been so prickly with him lately. She, he figures out that she has seen him with Liz Allen somehow. So he has to talk his way into being allowed to go with Aunt May. And she just seems sort of like, beat down and resigned and, yeah she and does she's she like is. well i suppose i can't keep you tied to my apron strings forever all right dear you may go <laughs> it's just like yeah well, you're always very coddling of him and he's just saying i'm gonna be flying to hollywood <laughs> and you're just like okay Whatever. <laughs> he shows up on the West Coast. We see the Enforcers and the Green Goblin and Spider-Man all on this set. But then they're apparently doing some of their filming out in New Mexico. So they go on this mobile unit out in New Mexico. And then Green Goblin's just like, hey, Spidey, you want to just go out and uh, rehearse some of these pages out in the desert? He's like, oh, yeah, sure. That sounds like a good idea. And then, of course, they attack him. Well, um, and Spider-Man says... BJ's makeup man must be a genius. They, those actors look like they're the real enforcers. <laughs> like, once again, assuming that mass technology is better than it actually is in this case, and assuming like, wow, uh, these guys who look exactly like the enforcers must be wearing really good masks. <laughs> so anyway, they start getting into a big epic fight, and we see Montana using his lasso. We see Ox using his strength. We see Fancy Dan 
actually, yeah, we see Fancy Dan trying to do his martial arts thing. We get to see the Green Goblin's pumpkin bombs for the first time, although I don't think they're called pumpkin bombs yet at this point. Um, no, they're just saying some sort of stun grenades, but those wind up turning into pumpkin bombs. Montana uses that distraction from the Green Goblin to lasso Spider-Man pretty good. But then <laughs> Spider-Man breaks the ropes off his body and he says, the one thing he didn't count on is my power of chest expansion. Which, you know, that's one of those things where it's like, uh, okay, Stanley, you should have just let the image do more of the talking in yeah. this case. Uh, Spider-Man has tried to get away by sneaking into a cave, but the bad guys find the cave. And then they end up rolling a big stone in front of the entrance to the cave so that Spider-Man can't get out and he's trapped in there. Uh, now, it seems to me there should be less light in here than we end up seeing, but, you know, that's just part of the visual storytelling medium that you can get away with in comics. A perpetual pet peeve of mine in comics <laughs> and movies and everything is that there's always more light than there should be. Like, it should be real easy for Steve Jekko to draw the last 10 pages of this book because they're <laughs> in a cave that's been sealed off from the outside. It shall be pitch black. Yes, yes. The Enforcers and the Green Goblin are looking for Spider-Man. There's some really neat scenes of Spider-Man picking them off one by one, like a horror movie from the ceiling, you know, in the dark where they can't see what's going on. So and it's kind of neat to have the hero essentially being the horror movie villain here and the bad guys being the ones who are picked off by him. So we do get some fun interaction with the stalactites and stalagmites in here. Once again, I've been really marveling this time around reading things about just how much attention uh, Steve Ditko pays to the physical environment he has his fight scenes going on in. This isn't quite up to the high bar he has set for himself, but it's, it's pretty good. Pumpkin bombs, or I guess stun grenades they're calling them now, are knocking down some of the... Uh, which one is it, stalactites or stalagmites? Which one is the one from the ceiling? Stalactites, C for ceiling. St ah, stalagmites, okay. G for ground. Okay, that see, I knew there was a there was a mnemonic that I learned at some point for that, but I couldn't remember it. <laughs> Thank you. So Spider-Man is taking care of the bad guys, seems to be, you know, making progress to wrapping them up, when suddenly it turns out the Hulk happened to be hanging out in this cave at this particular moment, which is a really strange coincidence to happen, but that is the way these things go. So then Spider-Man has to try to stay out of the Hulk's reach here for uh, most of this. And he finally is able to trick the Hulk into shattering that stone that was trapping him in the cave, uh, which is good. Now he can get out of there, but he doesn't get out of there quite yet. He turns back around and goes in to try to take care of the Green Goblin. But then eventually Spider-Man just ends up hiding underwater for a while to get away from both the Green Goblin and the Hulk. In the end, they all end up going off their separate ways and nobody really wins. They, they just have this big fight, and in the end, everyone just goes their separate ways. The, I don't know if it's director or DP or whatever, comes back to the Hollywood mogul and says, we weren't able to get any footage, uh, you know, that was going to be usable. Everybody's headed out, and so it's a big disaster. And then he hears about the Hulk being out there, and then he just moves on to be like, oh, that's it. That's my next movie. I'm going to sign the Hulk. 
Spider-Man then shows up at this point and he says, uh, hey, OK, so uh, how's about my money? And the guy's like, yeah, you don't get any money if there's no movie. That's that's not how this works. But uh, here's some money for your expenses. And that's it. So he decides to take the bus cross country home in order to save a little bit of the expense money and still be able to have something left over. Then we see the Green Goblin returning to his lair. And I find this funny. It just says, using his flying broomstick, the mysterious Green Goblin reaches the eastern metropolis a few hours ahead of Spider-Man and glides to a smooth landing in his murky hideout. So he has just flown all the way from New Mexico to New York City on basically a rocket that he has to grip with his thighs. You know, if you could imagine how bad it sounds like it would be to take Spirit Airlines cross country. Can you just imagine how much worse it would be <laughs> to ride on this thing? Wouldn't it get hot? Wouldn't you get start singeing your your thigh hair? You know, <laughs> it's, and um, I just, there's no bathrooms. There's no windshield. You're, the broomstick just doesn't work. It no. there's not a single drawing in this entire issue where I'm convinced he would be able to stay up on this broomstick. I'm like, nope, that wouldn't work. Nope, that wouldn't work. He'd fall right off that. Or there's no way the thrust would actually be, you know, able to keep him aloft in that situation. All sorts no. of stuff like that. No, yeah. uh, Dick Coach just can't make it work and yeah. would soon think better of it. Anyway, so that's about it. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, as we said, a very important issue for the introduction of a character who will be, as I said earlier, arguably Spider-Man's greatest, most iconic foe. But on the other hand, that character has not really come into focus well yet. This is sort of an odd little issue, but it's got some good stuff. We will look forward to what they do with this in the future. Yeah. Your well, thoughts? We talked about how the first, every villain in the first eight Spider-Man movies, except for a brief appearance by Venom, was introduced by Stan and Steve in these first 14 issues. And this is the final of those villains to be introduced. To a certain extent, these first 14 issues have provided the IP that has spawned billions and billions of dollars of Income, a movie released in late 2021, became one of the most successful movies of all time and had most of these villains in it. But this is the least auspicious debut of any of those villains, yes. I'd say. So we begin with the Green Goblin as a expansion of what we saw before with the Big Man, where he is a mystery villain. Both at the beginning and at the end of this issue, they really play up the mystery of who is he, and they hide his face quite pointedly as uh, we we don't get to see who he really is. And Spider-Man is left at the end of the issue wondering, I wonder who he really is. And he's even got, you know, when we first see him at the beginning of the issue, his face is sort of shrouded in darkness as we see him in the back of his uh, laboratory. Later, he's got this very sort of awkwardly placed piece of machinery that blocks his yes. face and that will come up quite a bit. They will get a lot of mystery. They'll get 20 issues of mystery, I guess, uh, 25 issues of mystery out of who he is and then eventually reveal it. And then, but then once that green goblin has ultimately met his final fate, they will create more mysteries of who other goblins are, who is the next person to take over the goblin persona and the next person after that. And then they will, and then they'll replace him with the hobgoblin and create much mystery out of who the hobgoblin really is. Now, but I think to a certain extent, and it's fun, and that becomes a major part of the Spider-Man comic, certainly Green Goblin, I think, only becomes really grateful and once we find out who he is and find out that he is the father of someone who will become Peter's roommate. And I think that Norman Osborn is in many ways a greater villain 
than the Green Goblin is. And when we find out that he's really Norman Osborn, it's really Norman Osborn who is the more compelling character than the Green Goblin himself. So that's one reason why the Green Goblin is not as compelling here as he will eventually become. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think it's a very good point that all of the other iconic villains that we saw that we have had introduced were all introduced in stories where the uh, character seemed really fully formed, uh, you know, and in good issues with good stories. Uh, whereas here just really isn't the case. It's ironic because this becomes the villain that they made the first Spider-Man movie uh, the antagonist for. Yeah, I love anyway. Mr. Cosmos. I love anyone who wears an ascot. But, you know, the story is generally sort of a repeat of Fantastic Four number nine in terms of, yes. you know, we've got a hero who is out of money and is offered a job to star in a Hollywood movie in which he, you know, is going to do his own superhero action. And then it turns out it's all set up by his villain. And, you know, when they claim that they're just rehearsing a scene, it turns out they're actually trying to kill him. This is all straight out of Fantastic Four number nine. Um, That's a good point. I should point out that the enforcers have finished their time in prison and gotten out, which implies they got a very light <laughs> sentence for some very serious crimes that they uh, perpetrated before. And again, given the collapsing time frame, it would mean they were in jail for a very short amount of time. But, you know, but ultimately, I think this is a fun issue. I think that the Green Goblin is a fun villain right away. He's got a good, he's got, except for the broomstick, he's got a good iconic imagery right away. He's just sort of fun. He's just sort of sort of cackling villain that Spider-Man hasn't really had instead of sort of the more dour Dicko villains. I always enjoy the Enforcers, and it's fun to have the Hulk show up, even though at this point it's like, dude, just, you know, if you want to have the Hulk show up every month, get him his own book. Uh, oh, and one last thing I meant to bring up here is that in Ditko's original, basically in Ditko's uh, rendition of the Green Goblin, he has like fake eyelashes. He's got like yeah. really, really long eyelashes. Uh, as soon as John Romita comes on board, he basically turns that into just big black outlines around his eyes that I think works slightly better. In this one, it works just fine. But then sometimes in later issues, he makes them look a little too uniformed where it really does look like, you know, fake eyelashes. <laughs> yeah. So good. We've had a good long discussion about that one. Let's see if we can, <laughs> let's see if we'll see what we can do with the next one here. So Fantastic Four, this one is yours. All right, we'll keep this one shorter. Let's go ahead and get our Fantastic Four number 28. Guest stars galore is the FF Tangles with the X-Men. And that's not all. You'll also see the Bad Thinker, the Puppet Master, and the awesome androids who we've got on the cover. The Fantastic Four fighting the X-Men as they're all in the hands. I guess this is supposed to be the metaphorical hands of Andy, the awesome android. Speaking of She-Hulk, which the, I have not seen the show. It seems to be based on the Dan Slott comics. Dan Slott made awesome use of... Andy, the awesome android in his comics. You watched the first episode. Does Andy show up? No. The only uh, villain who's shown up in the first episode is Titania. Played by Jamila Jamil, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, that's we, so awesome. We, we, only get, we only get to see her very briefly in this episode. We're watching The Good Place with our kids right now, and the kids just love it. So then we go ahead and start this issue. It is written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Chick Stone. Who does and... a great job who does a great job. So is this our first issue? I guess this is our first issue without George Bell. So we've had a terrible six or seven issues inked by George Bell, uh, absolutely ruining Kirby's art. And now this is our first issue inked by Chick Stone, who's been doing a great job over in Thor. And now they very wisely bring him over to Fantastic Four, where he does a great job. And it is such a relief. So this is not the last time this month that someone just happens to be discussing, oh, I wonder if we'll ever run into this person. And then they run into them. We have 
Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, going like, say, I'm reading about the X-Men in the newspaper. I wonder if we'll ever run into them. One thing I'll point out is when they're looking at the newspaper, they have a bit of a brain slip here by uh, Stan Lee. They're listing the villains that the X-Men have fought. And they say Magneto, the Space Phantom, the Blob, Quicksilver, the Scarlet Witch. Notice anything wrong with that list? Space Phantom. Yes. Um, I think that Stan Lee couldn't remember which lame villain he had assigned that same month to the Avengers and which one to the X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> that same month had both the Space Phantom and the Vanisher. The Vanisher is so forgettable <laughs> that he's confused him with the Space Phantom. All right, yes. go on. But so meanwhile, we have Reed going like, gee, I wonder if we'll ever meet the X-Men. Then we have Alicia talking to Ben, and she's going like, oh, I just can't help think about my father, the Puppet Master. And they're like, gee, I wonder if we'll ever see the Puppet Master again. Well, guess what? We're about to see them all again. We then cut to the Puppet Master shows up at the Mad Thinker's headquarters. So the Puppet Master has gotten a couple issues as a solo villain. From this point on in his Marvel career, he will be more of a lackey villain. He will be a villain who gets manipulated into using his mind control clay by other villains. And indeed, here is the Mad Thinker and his awesome android. Okay, we want you to use your radioactive clay to control Professor X of the X-Men, which he then does, and then it's not working, but Mad Thinker is saying, you know, I figured it all out to the last centimeter. Use another four and a third grams of radioactive clay. Now, generally speaking, if you're like trying to create a really good statue of somebody, just shuffling on more clay is not going to, you know, make the statue any better. But they take control of Professor X. They have Professor X order them to destroy the Fantastic Four. And they're like, well, we got to do it. You know, he's our boss. So then they go to the Fantastic Four's house, land in their helicopter show up, hang out with Fantastic Four for a while, they all show up for hours, then suddenly like, oh, by the way, Fantastic Four, we're here to kill you. And then they start trying to kill him. They get into a big, massive fight, although Reed suspects that the X-Men's heart is not really in it and do not really want to kill them. And so finally, Reed says, all right, guys, let's just quit fighting the X-Men and kill them whatever they want. So then the X-Men are like, all right, we want to move this whole fight to a plateau in the middle of nowhere. And we're going to, of course, keep Sue hostage. We're going to take Sue hostage. Now, at this point, Sue is like clearly the most powerful member of the team. So the idea that she is just <laughs> the professional hostage is pretty weird. But they take Sue hostage. They fly off. Well, she can't use any of her powers because she's stuffed in a locker. Yes. I and mean, yeah, uh, that's how things work. They're just like, okay, let's now just resume the fight on this plateau in the middle of nowhere that we've both flown to, which they do. But this time, the plateau has all sorts of booby traps. And so Ben gets sucked into a hole in the ground and Reed gets suddenly tangled up in a big revolving reel device, he calls it. Sue and Johnny get attacked by asbestos-covered straitjacket missiles. It turns out these are all things set up by the Mad Thinker and Puppet Master. Now, it's unclear why the Mad Thinker and Puppet Master felt the need to relocate the entire fight to this plateau, felt the need to insert themselves into the fight, felt the need to reveal to everybody who they are and what they're doing. The original plan of just having the X-Men go to the Baxter building and kill the Fantastic Four. It seemed like a good plan and one that was basically working. <laughs> why reveal that this was all their secret evil plan? I don't know why they ever had to reveal that, but they did. The Beast then figures out what they're doing and attacks the Puppet Master and knocks the Professor X doll out of his hand and then steps on the Professor X doll, which has the effect of freeing Professor X from their mental control. Now, in previous issues, we've seen when one of the Puppet Master's dolls oh, falls right. from his hand, it has a negative effect on the person who the doll, who this was a doll <laughs> made out of. And it would have like killed Professor X to have the beast then step on the doll. But in this case, it's good for Professor X. 
they free themselves from the Manthinger straps. At this point, everybody is on the same page. They're all like, all right, clearly the bad guys are these people who've just shown up and announced they were the bad guys for no reason. The Manthinger, the Puppet Master, and Andy the Awesome Android. And so then they get in a big fight. The X-Men and the Fantastic Four working together fight Andy. They fight the other people. Meanwhile, Professor X, still back at his home, is now free to act mentally. He then just does his awesome deus ex machina stuff he's always good at doing. He knocks out Andy mentally. For some reason, he has better luck knocking out Andy mentally than he does Manthinker or Puppet Master who get away. The X-Men and the Fantastic Four agree that if they ever meet again, it shall be as friends. Well, Sue says, I wonder if we'll ever meet the X-Men again. And Johnny says, one thing's certain, you sure couldn't miss him in a crowd. And Ben says, they weren't too bad for amateurs, except for the Beast, he's too ugly. And then they each agree to go back to their own books. I think this is a perfectly fine issue. I think it's sort of a shame that the Fantastic Four has sort of just become the team-up book, that every issue of the Fantastic Four now, for quite some time, has just been featuring people from other books to sort of cross-promote and cross-pollinate the Marvel Universe. Like, last issue was sort of a showcase for Doctor Strange. The two issues before, well, the issue before that was sort of a showcase for the Avengers. Uh, that issue and the previous issue showcases for the Hulk. I sort of miss the Fantastic Four getting to have their own book to themselves. But these are fun issues. They're just excuses for big, awesome fights. And now that we've got a better anchor, uh, getting to see Kirby and Stone do this big, awesome fight between Fantastic Four and X-Men is a lot of fun to watch. And this is a perfectly fine, serviceable issue. Yeah, I really enjoyed this issue a lot more than I thought I was going to. Uh, it's just, you know, just a fun knockdown, drag out fight issue long <laughs> knockdown, drag out fight. Uh, and, you know, it's fun to see these uh, characters that are very different. I mean, these two teams. Well, I guess in some ways they're both kind of like families to some extent. Yeah. But, you know, one's just a bunch of teenagers and the other, you know, are uh, a mixture of people of different generations. It just has a nice little contrast to it. It's nice to see these various different uh, meetings that you might not assume would happen in the Marvel Universe. But this is, uh, this is pretty neat. So a few things I want to point out, a few little details along the way. When the X-Men first turn on the Fantastic Four, Marvel Girl at one point picks up the Thing statue that Alicia has just made and ends up smashing it. Ben is very upset, and he's coming up with his fists balled up at her while she's like fearfully backing away. And he says, if you weren't a female, I'd demolish you. But the only thing I can do to a nut like you is give you the spanking of your life. It's like, ooh, wow, how times have changed. (laughs) However, you know, Thing does have a history of spanking supervillainesses going forward. I know in our childhood he did to Moon Dragon, but I think he's also at least attempted to do it to um, Thundra and, you know, a couple others. So they could just call him the Spanker at this point, it seems. <laughs> Another thing is they really make the X-Men seem like a cult. They do. Well, so he, the angel is talking to Sue and uh, Sue says, you mean you fought with the Fantastic Four, took me prisoner, came to this desolate place and don't know why? And Warren says, the one we take orders from knows what he's doing, Miss Storm. Our job is merely to obey him. Like, that's a cult. (laughs) And then uh, there's another panel a few minutes later where you see the possessed Professor X looking very creepy. And it just says, you must obey. You must obey. You must obey. In an image that I can't believe hasn't been turned into a meme yet. Yeah. (laughs) That is so meme worthy. (laughs) 
but not yet. And then at the end, Johnny is saying to Reed, it's strange, Reed. You originally made the android to help mankind. He didn't actually make him. I think he made notes about making him and the thinker then made the android from those notes. He says, but the mad thinker turned it into a menace. And Reed says, that's the irony of science, Johnny. No invention is good or bad of itself. It's only the use to which mankind puts it that really matters. I can see that argument. Uh, unfortunately, humanity usually ends up putting it to the worst use. Yeah. <laughs> so, any further thoughts about this issue? Uh, a couple. I just looking through my notes. We do have the old, how do you jump out of a building into a helicopter problem, which comes up again. And uh, <laughs> I hadn't noticed to, that. Yes, yeah, you right. have to do a really long jump. We have Andy the Android having super adaptoid powers where Andy the Android can like become like the thing when he's around the thing. That eventually gets dropped. He will no longer have mm -hmm. those powers eventually because they will create a new robot called the super adaptoid who will have those powers and then they'll forget that Andy used to have them. Yeah, but no, talking about how they're like a cult, when the X-Men leave, the Fantastic Four is saying about them, they're a wonderful group. Makes you proud of the youngsters of today. It's like, really? These guys made you proud of the youngsters of today? Because they seem like a dangerous cult. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, that's, what they're that, all, that's what we're looking for in the young folks of today. You know, people just, you know, automatically accept orders from their elders and not question anything. True. <laughs> true. I guess I guess this is all pre-Manson. So this is all like, <laughs> hey, it's a bunch of teenagers doing whatever a man tells them to do. That's that's still <laughs> lovely and sweet. Yes. All right. So uh, shall we move on to Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor? Yes, let's do that. All right, so this picks up right where the action left off in the previous issue. We're in this industrial trade show uh, where the Cobra and Mr. Hyde are facing off against Thor. That's right, and at the end of last issue, his hammer had gotten caught in one of these machines, and he couldn't get it out. He knows that he's about to turn back into Don Blake, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And so, not for the last time this, this issue... He just basically sneaks into the crowd, and then because he's just a person in the crowd, they don't see that he just changed. Now, that works kind of later when we see him do this, when he's Don Blake and then suddenly becomes Thor. It's like, you know, you wouldn't have noticed this person a moment ago, and so you'd be like, hey, one of these people here that I didn't notice just turned into Thor. But in this case, it's like, no, Thor slipped into the crowd <laughs> and was, like, right there, and then suddenly it's like, oh, you know, no one's like, oh, my God, what just happened to Thor? <laughs> uh, it's a little bit weird. Right, so the cops end up showing up, and there's a big standoff. And so then Don Blake comes forward and he says, hey, remember, I'm the one who was able to summon Thor for you last time. I can do it again, but you have to get my cane out of there first because it's an antique and I really like it. The Cobra tries to get in there and do it with his bendiness. And uh, there are some really sort of upsetting pictures of him <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> squeezing himself into this machine and then sort of bending his elbows around like it looks like his arm is terribly broken but he for the life of him cannot quite reach it so he comes out yeah, and then you, Mr. you got images that are very reminiscent of charlie chaplin's modern times when charlie chaplin gets oh, right to the machine and gets sort of ground up which represents getting ground up in the wheels of modern capitalism and uh, we've got similar images here of the cobra getting more and more ground up Good point. I had not uh, made that connection before. So Hyde then just rips the machine apart to get the walking stick out of there. And then in an exchange that I absolutely love here, Mr. Hyde says, there, you wretched weakling. There's your blasted cane. Now tell me where to find Thor before I decide to attack you next. And But no sooner does he grasp the precious object than Don Blake suddenly limps 
into the startled crowd. Mr. Hyde just yells, come back, I'll destroy you for this. That's quite a limp. Um, Or quite not of a limp. Or, you know, what this says to me is that Mr. Hyde is clearly not very swift in either sense of the term. (laughs) No. So so then this time uh, he's able to slip back into the crowd again and turn himself into Thor. As I said, this time seems slightly more plausible since he would just be some generic dude in a suit next to you and you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, wow, it's that guy that I saw. So then we have more of a fight in this whole industrial trade show thing, which is kind of nice. Mr. Hyde gets some sort of industrial blower that is really just blowing everybody uh, away. Thor is able to use one of these sort of amorphous powers of his hammer to uh, send some sort of electricity through the wood. Um, wood is a very good insulator against electricity, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah. but sure, whatever. So he's able to knock them loose. Uh, the cops are finally able to come in. Mr. Hyde takes his formula to turn back into Dr. Zabo. Nobody knows uh, that he was him. Mm-hmm. So... So once again, he becomes Dr. Sabo again, his glasses reappear, his mm-hmm. uh, mustache reappears, now not his goatee. When we saw him transform last issue, he had a mustache and a goatee. Now the goatee is gone, but the mustache is back, and somehow his glasses and little tiny bow tie have reappeared as well. Well, I mean, glasses reappear magically like that throughout the Marvel Universe. We will we will see that going forward as well. Yes. <laughs> so then, uh, and Dr. Zavo, as a matter of fact, is able to use his anonymity to direct the cops in a direction that will be helpful for him. So the Cobra is then uh, apprehended by the cops. Uh, Mr. Hyde gets away. He sees Thor walking out and takes his formula, turning back into Mr. Hyde, rips a light post out of the ground, comes up behind Thor and whacks him with it. Now, personally, I would have thought that Thor would have heard the light post being ripped out of the ground uh, half a block away. Uh, This is one of those things, though, where you have a silent visual medium. You can get away with all sorts of things like that when it comes to sound. You know, that you can more plausibly be like, oh, yeah, I just don't hear it. It's not a, it's not a thing. So then he loses his hammer once again. Thor does. And then he's about to go retrieve it. Then he's like, eh, you know what? If I can't defeat a goon like Mr. Hyde in 60 seconds, I'm not worthy of the hammer anyway. So <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and do this uh, barehanded. Eventually, Thor just picks him up, swings him around as though Mr. Hyde were Mjolnir and then hurls Mr. Hyde away, and then he picks up his hammer once again, and he says, let me grasp thee, my beloved Uru mallet. Let me feel thy heft. Together we are as noble Odin would will it. Invincible. Sounds a little bit like he likes the hammer just a bit too much for my comfort, but, you know, <laughs> you know what you're going to do. So anyway, then he goes back to the office and goes and speaks to Jane. But of course, it was a big public place where he offered to lead the bad guys to Thor. And so she is horribly upset with him and doesn't want anything to do with him because he's such a coward who will sell out heroes uh, that easily. And so she leaves and then he just goes into self-pity mode. This is a repeat of a couple issues ago where the exact same thing happened. And in that case, Thor found Jane. It's like, uh, yeah, Don Blake seemed like he was selling out me to the villains, but he really wasn't. And it's cool. And right. he didn't bother to do that this time. And he pays the price for it. Yes. You know, it's a shame to have him fighting Earth doofuses instead of fighting Asgardian villains, which is who he should be really fighting. And this story definitely shouldn't have been a two-parter, but they do manage to have some fun out of it. 
Hyde is a good villain. He's much better than Cobra. And indeed, they sort of realize that. I, I feel like this story is sort of oddly structured, where the whole story sort of comes to an end on page 12. And, yeah. you know, the cops come in. Hyde is turned back into Sabo, and he's going to slip away. And then the cops arrest Cobra, and everything's sort of over. And then suddenly, Sabo's like, wait, why did I stop fighting Thor? I wanted to keep fighting Thor. I'm just going to take my formula again, and we're going to resume the fight as if nothing happened. And it was as if Lee or Kirby had forgotten that this book used to be 13 pages, and then it had bumped up to 18 pages. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, right, crap, we still have five more pages here. Okay, it just everything just fires up again. We're just gonna we're just gonna start as <laughs> as if nothing had happened. We're just gonna resume this fight. Uh, Cobra's gone. He's been taken off by the police, but now it's just Hyde and Thor, and it's fine. They have more fighting, and uh, they yeah, to, uh, you're right. It is a it is a weird structure, but it kind of works. You know, it's like it's not just the same you know formula story here. So I I, I actually think that adds some uh, adds some spice. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah. But, you know, you had been talking about how, you know, Zavo's facial hair gets uh, absorbed into Mr. Hyde's face. There is a sequence in here on page 13 where you actually get to see that happen panel by panel where you see his, it's a close up on his face as he's just taken the formula. You see his mustache very clearly. There's a mid frame, a mid panel where it's in between his transformation and you see a much less prominent mustache there. And then the third panel shows the mustache entirely gone. So they actually do kind of address that visually here to some extent. Um, yeah. Although, you know what it looks like? It looks like the um, hairs just sucked into his face down there because they were being pulled out through his eyebrows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. His mustache gets added to his eyebrows to give him truly yeah. for some eyebrows. Yes. Uh, <laughs> It is a little strange, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, and, yeah. In the end, I like what he says. Thus, even in victory, I find defeat. Which is, if you've read any of my books, you know that the hero finding victory and defeat, defeat through victory or victory through defeat, are two of my favorite things. Two of great ways to add irony to comics. And here, uh, the irony is a little obvious and uh, not as effective as irony can be, but it still works out fine. And all because Jane is the worst. <laughs> she she often is so uh now we move on to tales of asgard unfortunately this is the second tales of asgard in a row that i have found disappointing what? Um, no i totally disagree i think this issue is awesome really um well, I, so, I say i think it's awesome i think the writing and penciling are awesome i think the inking is atrocious this is written with passion by stan lee drawn with passion by jack kirby inked with power by vince coletta and boy, oh boy, everybody's eyes. Look at page two of this issue. And if you want to see why people hate Vince Coletta, just look at page two of this issue. Look at Odin's eyes and Baldur's eyes on page two. Now, this is something that like Coletta is famous for is his feathering of eyes and his feathering of eyelashes. And I think that was the whole reason they had him inking Dazzler up well into when we were writing the books. It's like, oh, he has such beautiful feathered lady's eyes. Well, he is apparently trying to feather their eyes or something, and they just have these huge black holes in their heads. And it is so <laughs> ugly. It is so terrible. And I got to say, I liked the way that he inked Dazzler when we were kids uh, for that reason. I mean, that's actually one of the things is that, you know, whenever Vince Coletta inked a book in the 80s, he seemed to have very distinctive looking eyes on all the characters. 
years. So that was one of the reasons that I that I really was like, oh, that's one thing I really like about Coletta. And I hadn't gone back and looked at all the stuff in the 60s where I'm like, ooh, boy. Yeah, this is. I mean, look at every eye in this entire issue. Let's look. Page one, look at the eyes. Page two, look at the eyes. Every page, page three, page four. I mean, look at Thor's eyes on page five. I mean, just the, yeah, just the the little smears there. Smears. Yeah. Smears. Yeah. 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 He does a decent job on Baldur's eyes on page, which one is that? Three. Um, but that's about it. But just to get into the issue, yes, we have the unfortunate, I know we had the arrival of Vince Coletta in another issue previous month, but that wasn't over Kirby, was it? Was I think on? this is his second issue. No, you're right. Last month, he just inked Daredevil. And right. So starting with this issue, I guess this is his first Tales of Asgard. And unfortunately, he will ink this Tales of Asgard and every Tales of Asgard until the end of the feature. Eventually, he will take over the lead feature in Thor as well. But we get this bizarre sort of period for a while here where Coetta is just thinking the back. Coetta is just thinking Tales of Asgard. And they've got much better inkers on the first half of the book. And then eventually, Coetta gets his fingers into the pie and Coetta takes over the whole book. But we're going to have another couple issues here where thankfully he's only going to be on the back of the book. But he is going to be ruining Tales of Asgard and will ruin the entire rest of the run of Tales of Asgard. So in terms of the story here, um, essentially, this just seems like a somewhat emotionless and low stakes version Mm -hmm. of the Abraham and Isaac story. <laughs> right? yes. In that the father God is essentially saying, oh, well, we're going to do this thing that's going to cause horrible death. And it's like, OK, well, you know, the father God says to do this, so I will just go ahead and let it happen. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. OK, something happened. So, uh, you know, that's good. I just like I like the idea, you know, it begins with Odin going like you were you know, it says yesterday during the final battle between my warriors and the deadly storm giants, you deserted the fight when we pursued them back to their land. Have you an explanation for me, Balder? And then Balder, I think it's a great introduction to a character. He says, yes, sire. I saw a bird fall from its nest and I turned to place it back with its mother. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> right away we've got Balder as this extremely brave, extremely bold, extremely handsome hero who has nevertheless just got an incorrigible sweet spot i love balter i I think balter is uh, an adorable character now what i dislike about this issue is that balder is literally standing at attention standing still for pretty much the entire story and he you know this is supposed to be our introduction to balder the brave one of the great warriors of the you know norse uh, mythology and you know we just have him standing at attention <laughs> you know like oh wow okay well, we proved how brave he is i'm like eh, it's kind of a lame way to do it yes he ends up having to just sort of prove he's brave by standing at attention but i think it's a fun story and uh horrifically inked but i think that uh it's enough to make me fall in love with Balder. did you ever read buddha by osama tezuka i read big parts of it i have not finished I, I i somehow got distracted and never finished it actually i think it's still on my nightstand <laughs> right, um, i think i gave yeah. it to you i gave it to you to read i think i i gave it at least the early volumes i don't think i gave it the later volumes there is a very similar sequence in osama tezuka's buddha of a brave person who is being and you know presumably tezuka influenced by this issue of birds in that case, much more violently throwing themselves in the way of arrows or spears or something in order to save a hero. I should do that at some point. 
It is all right. one of the all-time great comics masterpieces. And meanwhile, t- time to move on to Strange Tales, which I guess is your turn now. Okay, so let's go and do Strange Tales number 122, Three Against the Torch, in which a fighting mad flaming teenager battles the three arch foes you met in Fantastic Four number 23. Remember the master plan of Doctor Doom? And then, so this is something that Marvel will do pretty commonly from this point on. They'll, they also just show Doctor Doom on the cover, and it's with a little arrow pointing to him saying, Doctor Doom does not appear in this story. We just felt like drawing his face. <laughs> which is sort of an admission right away that, like, why on earth are we bringing back three of Dr. Doom's goons and not bringing back Dr. Doom? We've made a terrible mistake, which they are admitting right here on the cover. And then it also says, also in this jam-packed issue, Dr. Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. So Dr. Strange giving more and more pride of place in this book. He's, he's drawn almost as big as Johnny here on the cover. But so then we begin the issue. We will quickly go through this issue. It's not very good. Penciled by Dick Ayers, inked by George Bell. It's interesting how I like Ayer's finest penciler. I like him a lot as anchor, but he does not do well as a penciler under other anchors. And so we have this month, we have one issue with Ayer's inked by Marvel's worst anchor, George Bell, another issue where he's inked by Marvel's best anchor, Paul Reinman, and neither of them can do anything with Ayer's. Uh, they're both really weak books. This is a weak book with Ayer's inked by Bell, but uh, Giant Man will be a weak book with Airs inked by Rydman. We quickly review who these three guys were from Fantastic Four 23, Handsome Harry, Yoki Dakora, and Bull Brogan. We then remember that Dr. Doom betrays them and, you know, once he's used them up, zaps them into another dimension in that issue. Uh, and then Dr. Doom himself ended up getting sucked into another dimension. It reveals that they all three, once Dr. Doom was no longer there to keep them in the other dimension, they came back through and they're like, hey, you know who was awesome? Dr. Doom. That guy was great. Like, <laughs> I can't wait to go back to work for him. It's a shame he's been sucked into another dimension himself and isn't around. I tell you what, we want him to come back. It says, when the master returns, we must show him that we are worthy of his training. We must perform a feat that will make him proud of us. I'm like, oh, dudes, you know, there's, <laughs> I realize that no one has yet published the book. He's just not that into you. So I can understand that before that book was published, that people may not have had that language. But Eventually, guys, there will be a book published called He's Just Not That Into You, and uh, I think that book was made for you guys. I think this is this is a book that you guys need to read. They, of course, find amongst themselves, and they say, no, let's go ahead and take out the youngest member of the Fantastic Four. Let's take out Johnny Storm. They show up at his house. They then do a repeat of Fantastic Four 23. They once again sucker him into putting himself in danger through his love of cars. In this case, they claim they're from Auto Age Fanzine and want to have an interview. They then attack him. They, of course, roll him up in an asbestos blanket. They put him in an asbestos-lined trailer in a trailer park and then drive away. And he says, well, I can't catch the thing on fire, but I can't fill it with smoke. And then someone else in the trailer park will call the fire department because there's no smoke, which is a fairly clever way of dealing with things. He then, they're then waiting. It is, but I'm kind of bothered by the fact that he never generates smoke except the times when it'll solve a problem for him. Sure. And I'm not quite sure if you could be like, oh, well, I'll just burn slightly less efficiently and this, that, and the other. But it's just sort of like without him saying, oh, I know I don't usually produce smoke, but I can do such and such. And then, uh, but it bugs me a little bit. Anyway, go on. He finds them at his house waiting to attack his sister. He attacks them first. He says, now, inasmuch as your asbestos rope won't burn, I'll tie it around a blazing fireball. And don't forget, Yogi, I can guide my fireballs to go anywhere I command, and this one will take your own capable rope with it. So uh, that's a whole thing. But Yeah, then... I, I, that, that, that's where my suspension of disbelief just says, you know what, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, to cut a long story short, he has a big fight with him. Handsome Harry gets away in his souped-up stingray, and he manages to get it to crash on a beach and forces Handsome Harry to dig it out of the sand himself because he doesn't want to deal with it. Sue Storm comes home and sees the house as a wreck and assumes, I'll bet you had those roughneck friends of yours over while I was gone. And then, but then bizarrely, Johnny ends the issue directly addressing us, says, don't feel too sorry for me, friends. When Sue found out what really happened, she was so embarrassed she couldn't speak for an hour. Anyway, for some more of my adventures, don't miss Fantastic 428, which we missed the X-Men. And I'll be seeing you, of course, in the next great issue of Strange Tales. So till then, this is your pal Johnny saying flame off. So it's sort of like a Musketeer show ending of the issue. So that was Johnny Storm. Do you have anything to say about Johnny Storm before we move on to Doctor Strange? <laughs> Just a few little details here. When they do the recap of Yogi Dakor uh, luring the torch into his fancy car last time, <laughs> it uh, it really just does sound like like nobody ever taught Johnny about stranger danger. And this is not yes. <laughs> this is this you know this happens uh, all the time. So it says that first time they met as he lured the unsuspecting teenager into an escape proof vehicle. Like, did you have candy? <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, there's the fireball thing. And uh, no, I think those are the only two things I really had to point out about this. So uh, relatively forgettable. Let's move on. The comedian Dimitri Martin said, man, when vans were first invented, creeps must have been. This is awesome. You know, they're like <laughs> a, a room on wheels with no windows. Like, I, I've always wanted something like this. But, <laughs> Uh, oh, I guess one thing I, I did want to point out is I do like uh, Johnny's uh, quick dry room that he's got yes. at his house. That's that's kind of neat. Uh, I, yeah. I like that for when for when he gets wetted, which happens a lot. Now this is this is a truly lame issue. There's absolutely no reason for this issue to exist. This entire Human Torch solo <laughs> feature needs to end as soon as possible and be replaced with Nick Fury: Asian of Shield, which is one of Marvel's best books. So. Uh, I cannot wait for that to happen. But we've got, oh, at least at least 10 more issues, I would say. Maybe more. Maybe 15. It's uh, it's going to be a grueling death march. So, okay. <laughs> so then let's go ahead and jump to the good part of the book, Doctor Strange. And we have an awesome Doctor Strange story written with a touch of sorcery by Stan Lee, drawn with a dash of necromancy by Steve Ditko, lettered with a number six pen point by Art Cymax. So we have Dr. Strange is tired, working at his desk, uh, falls asleep at his desk, thinks he wakes up and sees this mysterious hooded figure come to get him, realizes that no, he didn't wake up. He whoops, fell asleep without remembering to say his special enchantments that apparently he says whenever he falls asleep to keep himself from being sucked into Nightmare's dimension. And he didn't do it this time. And now he is sucked in. We get awesome art of him being put in a little glass ball and flung through many different dimensions as only Steve Ditko can draw them. Well, I say that lots of other Marvel artists will well. <laughs> draw them in the exact same way. <laughs> yeah. Th this, this is just so influential on a certain group of Marvel artists that come, especially in the seventies. Everyone is clearly just aping these panels that we see here on page four. And, you know, I mean, other times that Steve Ditko has done this, but it's just, there are just some fantastic examples of just the otherworldly dreamscapes that he's able to create in a way that, yeah, no one could have done before him, but many people have uh, been doing since him. Uh, I will also point out that given the fact that 
he also does Spider-Man, where everything seems to be grounded in these real-world locations uh, that are very physical and interact with the characters and everything, that combine that with these crazy, surreal dreamscapes he can come up with here. That just really shows his incredible range. Incredible. It's There's never been another artist like it uh, with the sort of range he shows in these two books. So the Doctor Strange ends up in Nightmare's Realm. Nightmare is toying with him. He then puts him in some really awesome chains. Like, if you want to chain up a superhero, this is how you do it. These are some <laughs> badass manacles that he has put on Doctor Strange. And uh, Doctor Strange looks like he is really in trouble here. But then Doctor Strange is like, aha, I'm not as powerless as you think. The final victory should be mine. And now we even one look behind you. And then Nightmare sees that his greatest nemesis, it turns out he has a great nemesis named Gulgol, G-O-L-G-O-L, who is the one foe I cannot defeat for he never sleeps. And we get a really awesome looking giant monster who comes out of a big red puddle in the ground and starts stalking towards Nightmare and nothing Nightmare can do can stop him. And then finally, Dr. Strange says, only I can stop him. You must free me from my bonds. And uh, Nightmare frees Dr. Strange from his bonds. And Dr. Strange just snaps his fingers and makes Gulagol disappear. Because it turned out that this was hypnotism. We haven't really gotten <laughs> much power of hypnotism from Dr. Strange until now. But it turns out he does have some hypnotic powers. And he was able to just hypnotize Nightmare into thinking Gulagol was coming. And then at this point, he has all his powers. He's able to kick Nightmare's ass and take off. Uh, back to our world and it is you know it's a bit of a bit of a cheat to have dr strange win using a power we haven't seen him use before but he will use it again but he then is very happy to be back in our world and swears he will never again go to sleep without saying his little enchantments but it is an absolutely gorgeous issue this is just this is just dicko at his very best this is the dicko dr strange we all know and love and it is just an absolutely gorgeous issue, more spectacular in the art than the writing, but also nicely written, a nice issue all around. Uh, yeah, I think the hypnotism thing does really kind of bother me, not only because we've never gotten any hint that he has a power of hypnotism that is very specifically not part of his magic powers, right? That's the reason he can still use that here. And the fact that he's able to hypnotize Nightmare who is like, you know, <laughs> would he have anything like the same sort of mind that could, that, that bothers me a little bit, but, um, but yeah, I, I will, I will take it for all of the otherworldly dreamscape world building that we get in here. Yeah. Okay. That's, we've got another four books to cover this month, but let's go ahead and wrap up there for this episode. And then we will continue recording tonight and record the other four books this month, but we will release that in our next episode. Thanks so much for coming back, everybody. We had our longest gap ever between episodes, between last, uh, last episode and this one, because we were traveling for the month of August. But it's good to have you back. It's good to do another episode, and we are going to record another one right away, and we will release these two episodes soon. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, stay safe out there. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.